Ciao a tutti! In the last weeks, we've been silent again on the blog and on the podcast, and we were working on a big project, Buy Food Toscana. It is an event organized by the region of Tuscany and Promo Firenze, aiming to the promotion of the Tuscan PDO and PGI products to international buyers and journalists. They ask us to introduce the audience to some of the best PDO and PGI products of Tuscany, through stories, recipes and some tastings. I was a bit anxious about the speech, but when I shared my doubts on Instagram, you gave me so many tips and support that I channeled all your enthusiasm and truly enjoyed the speech. It has been an interesting journey. I learned so much about public speaking and about some of the food products that we mistakenly give for granted as we are used to them, uh, to their quality and availability. We wanted to record the whole speech to share it here with you on the podcast, but halfway through the speech, a blackout in the whole neighborhood interrupted the recording. So the things that happened. So we decided to record it all over again, as it is a marvelous food tour through the most extraordinary products of Tuscany. It's rich, packed with information and recipes, something you don't want to miss. So get ready, fasten your seatbelt, and prepare to get hungry. And now, let's start. Remember that you will find all the links to the recipes and the consortia we mentioned today in the episode show notes. Also, don't forget to visit juleskitchen.com for more information and to discover new stories and recipes from Tuscany. Ciao, my name is Giulia Scarpaleggia. I am a Tuscan-born and bred country girl, a home cook, a food writer and photographer. I teach Tuscan cooking classes in my house in the countryside, and I've been sharing honest, reliable Italian recipes for 10 years now, through my cookbooks and my blog, juicekitchen.com. If you love everything about Italian food, big crowded tables and seasonal ingredients, join us and follow Cooking with an Italian Accent. Welcome to Cooking with an Italian Accent, episode 12. Today's theme is stories about food in Tuscany. Get hungry with Tuscan PDO and PGI products. I'm very excited to be here today to talk about the thing that I love the most, food. And I'm pretty sure they asked me to be here today introducing you to the best food products of Tuscany because I'm basically always hungry. I'm hungry for food, I'm hungry for recipes, I'm hungry for all the stories that are behind the food. So we are here today to talk about PDO and PGI products. First of all, I want to explain you the differences. A PGI, that in Italy we call EGP, is a protected geographical indication. This label is used to describe an agricultural product or food whose production and or processing and or preparation take place in a specific geographic area and whose quality, reputation or other characteristics are attributable to that geographic origin with its inherent natural and human factors. A PDO, that in Italy we called DOP, is a protected designation of origin product. This label is used to describe an agricultural product or a food whose production, processing and preparation take place in a specific geographic area and whose quality or characteristics are essentially or exclusively due to a particularly geographical environment with its inherent natural and human factors. So what does it mean? Why PDO and PGI products are so important? 
This label certifies that the quality and the production is controlled by a strict disciplinary given by the European Union. They are linked to the geographic area where they are produced and to the human skills required to produce them. It means that sometimes a higher price means a higher quality. The Tuscan region is one of the most highly regarded regions in Italy because it has a very high number of PDO and PGI products. Just talking about food, so uh, setting aside for a moment the wine, in Tuscany there are 16 PDO and 15 PGI products. What does it mean? It means that you can set up a whole menu from appetizer to dessert just by using these products. So what I want to do today is to bring you to a virtual food tour or to have with you a virtual cooking class. How does it work usually? I meet my students at the market, we have breakfast together, an espresso at the bar, standing at the counter and an Italian croissant. After this, we shop for the class, choosing the menu according to what we can find at the market, the freshest vegetables or fruit. Uh, for example, now I would choose uh, cherries and strawberries that are in season. Then I would stop at the Cisto, and this is where you could find my friend Gabriele. This is where I can buy Pecorino Toscano DOP and Pecorino delle Balze Volterrane DOP, our local sheep cheeses. We have some tastings and then we buy the cheese for our cooking class. Then we stop at the local forno, the bakery, for some bread, but not any bread, our Tuscan bread, the Pane Toscano DOP, a bread made without salt. After the bakery, it is time to visit the local macellaio, which is the butcher, where you can buy local pork, Cinta Senese DOP, to be precise, and beef our Vitellone Bianco dell'Appennino Centrale IGP, that you might probably know as Chianina. The butcher, Luciano, is a friend now, so we have also the chance to taste some charcuterie, like our Prosciutto Toscano DOP and the Finocchiona IGP. After this, we go back home, where there are more products that are the backbone of our pantry and will be the backbone of our meal. The extra virgin olive oil, and here we have the Chianti Classico DOP, Seggiano DOP and Toscano IGP. In my pantry, I always have some farro della Garfagnana DOP, spelt, just in case I want to make a soup or a salad in summer. There's usually also some day-old pane toscano for a panzanella or papal pomodoro, and just a flour, like the one made with marrone del Mugello IGP or with castagna del Monte Amiata IGP. When our meal comes to an end, I open my cupboard to offer some local sweet treats with a coffee or vinsanto, a morsel of panforte di Siena IGP, our chewy fruit cake, or probably Ricciarelli di Siena IGP, the local almond pastries. Or I could open my jar with Cantuccini Toscani IGP, the super famous almond biscotti. These are all PDO and PGI products, the backbone of our pantry, what I use daily for us in my family, but also for my enlarged family of the cooking classes. I share the importance of choosing these products. I want to stress that you can really set up a whole menu with our local PGI and PDO products, from appetizer to dessert. When my clients during a cooking class ask me, how can I find good olive oil back in my country? How can I find high quality chestnut flour or farro or prosciutto or ricciarelli? I tell them, search for the labels. Those little labels, the PDO and PGI labels with their recognizable shape and color, they become a way to recognize the quality and the origin of a product. So if you are ready, we can embark in a virtual cooking class, a virtual food tour of the excellence of our region. 
I'll introduce you to some of the best local products, to their uses and traditions, to the recipes you can make with them. Are you ready? So we could start from nowhere else than from bread, our Pane Toscano Dop. The crust is crunchy with a dark, opaque, nut-brown color. The inside of the bread, the crumb, is white or ivory white, with irregular air bubbles. It smells of roasted hazelnuts, while on tasting, it is unsalted and slightly acidic. What is interesting is to read the ingredients. You have water, of course, flour. It is a type zero soft wheat whole grain flour from Tuscany. And then you have sourdough natural yeast. Nothing else, nothing more. No salt. So these ingredients and this ancient salt-free bread making method, they give a long shelf life to the bread and the characteristic of the crust and the crumb. It is not easy to get used to this bland bread, I know. This is the first thing everyone mentions during a cooking class. For me, born in this land, this is the bread. So why it is made without salt? There's a possible explanation. One is a legend, one is probably the reality. For the legend, there was a quarrel in between Florence and Pisa because Pisa used to control the coast and they had salt mines, so they had the control of salt. They put high taxes on salt and Florence, well, didn't want to pay those taxes, so they started making bread without salt. This says a lot about the behavior and the characteristic of uh, Tuscan people. But there could be also another explanation, and this one is probably the reality. If you think about our prosciutto or our pecorino, they're both very salty, so you need a bland bread to go with them. So basically, all these products, the bread, the charcuterie, the cheese, they develop together to give us the perfect balance when we eat them. But my grandmother, she says that she can give up on everything, but not on bread. And these days, we are at home alone without my parents, because they are on holidays, and so we basically are taking care of my grandmother. She's 91, uh, she lives on her own, she cooks, but she doesn't drive anymore. So being in the countryside, you had to bring her to the supermarket. Uh, we were quite busy, so uh, she was, you know, using everything she had in the fridge and in her pantry, but she was without bread. So she told me, listen, I can wait until your mom comes back to go to the supermarket, but you had to give me some bread. I cannot eat without bread. So this is how she loves bread. She eats bread with everything, not just with prosciutto or meat. She eats bread with fruit. It's so normal for her. Pane con panatico, bread and something to eat with bread. When we talk about bread, the first thing that comes to my mind is merenda. Merenda is more than an afternoon snack. It is an eating habit codified just like lunch and dinner, with its own traditions, rules and memories. As we usually have dinner quite late here in Italy, around 8 at night, the merenda is a quick snack that children usually eat in the afternoon, in between 4 and 5 o'clock. It has a connotation of childhood, as you are usually given your merenda until you are out of school, before you are considered too old to be allowed a slice of bread topped with butter and jam in the afternoon. However, I know a good share of adults who are very happy to have some pane marmellata for merenda. Before the arrival of industrial, mass-produced, sugar-drenched snacks, bread was usually the most common ingredient eaten for merenda. It was pane e olio, pane burro e zucchero, pane e pomodoro, pane e vino. Pane olio, that we call also bruschetta or fettunta, 
is usually the merenda for uh, winter or autumn. My grandmother would toast me a slice of bread, then rub it with garlic, and then she would pour olive oil on top, like very generously. Then pane burro zucchero was a treat. So a slice of bread spread with butter and a good sprinkling of sugar. Sometimes you could have honey instead of sugar. Pane pomodoro, well, this was summer, uh, summer merenda. Bread, not toasted this time, but a fresh slice of bread rubbed with the ripe tomatoes from the garden until the bread was stained in red. Then olive oil, of course, sprinkle of salt, some dried oregano, and that was merenda, delicious merenda. Sometimes it is dinner for my grandmother, even for me, in summer. Then pane vino. This is an old-fashioned merenda. Pane vino means bread and wine. The bread was stained with a few drops of red wine and then sprinkled with sugar. I never had this merenda, I have to confess, but just because I don't drink, I don't like wine. Um, but my grandmother, she remembers this merenda from her childhood days. And now another use of bread. Bread as a stale bread, a day-old bread. Bread was used until the last crumb. It was a great scene and still is to throw bread away. And it's probably the richness of popular recipes related to the use of stale bread. So here we have to mention pappa al pomodoro, a tomato bread soup, or panzanella, a tomato and cucumber salad, or minestra di pane, a bean and bread soup. This is what becomes ribollita if you reboil, recook the day after. But then also acqua cotta, a typical recipe from Maremma. But why not to mention breadcrumbs? With stale bread, you can make breadcrumbs and use the breadcrumbs to stuff a chicken or to bake some eggplants on onions, and this becomes a nice appetizer or even a side dish. After bread, another of my favorite ingredients, extra virgin olive oil. First of all, today I will say olive oil quite often, but every time I say olive oil, I mean extra virgin olive oil. Why? Because extra virgin olive oil is a juice of olives. We pick the olives, usually in October, November, and we bring the olives to the olive oil meal. This is where they press the olives and then you get extra virgin olive oil. So basically, you press the olives, it's a mechanical extraction. While when we talk about virgin olive oil or olive oil, it's not mechanical, it's chemical. So everything we will say about olive oil today, the qualities, the benefits, the health benefits, how you can use that in the kitchen, the flavor, the color, the aroma, everything is related, is linked, is referred to extra virgin olive oil. Not olive oil, not virgin olive oil. So during cooking classes, olive oil is usually one of the ingredients where I got asked more questions. Uh, it is one of the ingredients that has always caused more questions and doubts because I, I grew up worshipping olive oil as a key ingredient in Tuscan cooking. It is still one of my favorite ones, but we tend to give it for granted. So I've seen my parents picking olives here in Tuscany every year. We pick olives around October, November, December. It really depends on the year, but usually always before Christmas. Then we bring them to the olive oil meal where they're pressed. And the first thing you do when you come back home is to make a bruschetta. So you toast some bread, some garlic sometimes, and then freshly pressed olive oil. That's our favorite way of opening up a dinner during autumn, usually. Olive oil is precious, but it's not something you have to keep for long. It's completely different from wine. 
So you pick olives, let's say in autumn, and then you have the best of your olive oil for the first six months. Then the shelf life of an olive oil is usually 18 months, so one year and a half. Don't keep your olive oil next to the stove. Keep it in a dark, cool place, in a cupboard probably. So keep it far from the heat and from the light and try to use it as soon as possible. Don't save it for the good days. Do that with wine probably, not with olive oil. Our is probably the civilization of olive oil. We use olive oil for cooking and it's our favorite medium for cooking. In the north of Italy and uh, in the rest of Europe, they might use butter or lard, but from the center of Italy down to the south, that's olive oil. Our landscape is shaped thanks to these as well. So if you drive through Tuscany, you might see olive groves and vineyards olive oil and wine, the main products of Tuscany. And it's like being in a postcard, as it is thanks to the work of men that work together with nature to create what we have now. But let's talk about olive oil, extra virgin olive oil and food. So how to match olive oil and food? So you have to know this, in Italy there are at least 700 different varieties of olives. It is just like with wine, as you have Pinot or Chardonnay or Sangiovese, it's the same with olive oil. You can have different kinds of trees like Moraiolo, Leccino, Frantoio, and of course, they produce different olives, and different olives produce different olive oil, different flavors, color, aroma, and so different olive oil for different kinds of food. The olive oil changes according to the cultivars that are used and how they are processed. But let's talk about cooking. How can I use olive oil when I want to cook? First of all, you can use extra virgin olive oil for seasoning, drizzling over uh, raw food like a salad or a tartare, or to finish a food like a panzanella or a soup like a bean soup or a farro salad. So extra virgin olive oil for seasoning. Bread, not to forget bread. Then extra virgin olive oil for preserving. This is a very ancient way of preserving food. You can, uh, now it's summer, finally summer, we can pick up summer vegetables. You can blanch them in white wine and water or uh, white wine um, and vinegar and water. Then you dry them and then you can preserve them in olive oil. Think about green beans, eggplants, artichokes, or my favorite, the giardiniera, which is like a collection of vegetables in a jar. Then extra virgin olive oil for cooking. Extra virgin olive oil as a cooking medium. It can be just shallow frying, deep frying, stewing, whatever you want. Remember that all the qualities we are talking about are for the extra virgin olive oil. You can fry with extra virgin olive oil because it has a high smoking point, something you cannot reach in your house. Well, I'm talking about your house, not McDonald's, okay? But it's different when we talk about virgin olive oil or olive oil. So fry just if it is extra virgin olive oil. Then extra virgin olive oil and baking. This is probably one of my favorite way of using olive oil. Think about apple cake made with extra virgin olive oil or a Vinsanto cake or chocolate cake. If you use olive oil in baking, the cake will stay moist for days and you have a cake which is really moist and um, you have the amazing smell of olive oil, which is also very gentle, but it's, it makes really really unique. And today I want to talk about three different kinds of extra virgin olive oil that we have here in Tuscany. 
The first one is Olio Extravergine di Oliva Toscano IGP. The production area of the Toscano PGI Extravergine Olive Oil is within the entire region of Tuscany. Um, you can obtain this olive oil from many varieties, from Americano, uh, Arancino, Ciliegino, Gremignolo, Madonna dell'Impruneta, Pesciatino, Piangente, Razzaio. There are numerous um, cultivars that you can use, but all these varieties, uh, they have to be at least 95% of the groves used individually or mixed for this olive oil. All the production from harvesting to milling to packaging, they had to take place within Tuscany. The Toscano PGI Extra Virgin Olive Oil is deep green to golden yellow in color. The aroma is fruity with hints of almond, artichoke, mature fruit and green leaves. It displays strong bitter and pungent notes. Can be used for local bean soups, for cooked or raw vegetables and bruschetta. It is also excellent for using in traditional Toscan cakes and desserts. Then another olive oil, the Olio Extravergine di Oliva Chianti Classico DOP. The Chianti Classico DOP Extravergine Olive Oil is obtained from Lecino, Frantoio, Correggiolo and Moraiolo olive varieties, which must make up at least 80% of the groves. So where is this olive oil made? The production area of Chianti Classico PDO Extra Virgin Olive Oil is within the territory of several municipalities in the province of Siena and in the province of Florence in the Tuscany region. The first official recognition of the territory came in the 1716, um, thanks to an edict issued by Grand Duke Cosimo de' Medici III, which basically created what, which are the current borders of the Chianti Classico area, so well known for its wine and olive oil production. The color, the color of this olive oil is from an intense green color to green with golden hues. It has a mild fruity fragrance and a sharp fruity olive aroma. It has a very piquant flavor with a bitter artichoke and thistle aftertaste. This is ideal for adding to soups, for grilled meat or vegetables, and it is also excellent for using with typical Tuscan dishes, such as, for example, ribollita or panzanella. And now a third extra virgin olive oil, and now I'm talking about Olio Extra Virgin di Oliva Seggiano DOP. This is slightly, you know, it's another area of Tuscany slightly less known than Chianti, for example, because now we are talking about the slopes of Mount Amiata. This olive oil must be made with at least 85% of trees belonging to the Olivastra Seggianese cultivar. These are very old trees, they are century old trees, very big, it's a beautiful area, very unique. This olive oil is green in color with golden yellow tones. It has a fresh and fruity aroma with notes of grass and artichokes, and then you can also feel some white fruit. The flavor is clean and it tastes of olives with perfect harmony between bitter and piquant. It's very delicate, so it's suitable for dressing salads, vegetables and fish. And also it's very nice for pasta-based dishes, cakes and biscuits. So, bread, olive oil, the third ingredient I want to talk about is pecorino, so cheese. Pecorino cheese in Tuscany. There are countless varieties of pecorino cheese in Italy. Pecorino just means made with sheep milk. So just imagine how many options you have to make cheese. Because you can have Sicilian pecorino, Sardinian pecorino, the Roman one, which you might know better than the others, which is assertive and almost piquant. But then we have our Tuscan pecorino. Pecorino has always been part of our family meals. 
when my mom got married, she was quite young. She was not so good in cooking. So I remember during the first years um, of my childhood, not very good meals. But there was always pecorino to save up dinner. So after a very quick dinner that she would prepare after coming back from work, we would have some pecorino very often. Uh, it could be a fresh pecorino with pears, probably, or it could be a crumbly, dry pecorino eaten with some bread. Pecorino is like, I need to have pecorino in my fridge always. Sometimes I forget about dinner mm -hmm. and so uh, I can save up dinner with some pecorino. But I like to have pecorino grated on pasta. I like to make risotto with pecorino. I like pecorino as an ingredient or on its own. And during cooking classes, after the tasting that we have at the market, we always have pecorino in our cheese board with all the different kinds of jams and honey. And then pecorino. Pecorino is an ingredient that we always have for our picnics in spring. We had quite a horrible spring this year, very rainy and cold, so not many picnics. But when is the season of picnics? For You start with Easter Monday, then you have the 25th of April, which is the Italian national holiday, and then the 1st of May. So this is when you have pecorino in a picnic with fava beans or salami and some bread. Very typical for us, very simple. It's an ingredient you bring easily uh, to the picnic. And I want to talk about two different kinds of pecorino. The first one is pecorino toscano dop. It is produced all over Tuscany. And the origins of this pecorino can be traced back as far as the Etruscan times. And there was even Pliny the Elder, Plinio il Vecchio, and he wrote about the cheese in the Luni area, which is Lunigiana. So sheep farming always been present in Tuscany. There are many documents attesting the importance of pecorino, of this cheese in Tuscany, throughout history. Um, in the past times it was called Cascio Marzolino. Marzo is March. And so it was a cheese that would, they would start making around March. You can have two different kinds of pecorino toscano. You have a soft or a semi-hard cheese. And they are both produced with whole sheep's milk. It can be either raw or unpasteurized. So the soft one is called fresco, fresh, and the semi-hard one is called stagionato, so a mature cheese. The soft pecorino, the fresh one, it can be aged for a minimum of 20 days, but usually it is aged up to 45 or 60 days. While for the aged pecorino, pecorino stagionato, which is a semi-hard cheese, the cheese must be aged for at least 120 days, but many people age that for up to a one year. Then another pecorino, this one is pecorino delle balze volterrane dop. Uh, this is a pecorino which is made with raw sheep's milk and the rennet used is a vegetable rennet. This is the most ancient rennet used to make cheese and this is obtained by the wild artichokes, by the, the thistle. Since the cheese is made with raw milk, when you taste it, you can really taste the season, all the herbs that have been grazed by the sheep around Volterra. As for the pecorino delle balze volterrane dop, you can find a fresh one, fresco, a semi-mature, which is called a semi-stagionato, a mature, stagionato, and even an even more precious one, da acerbo. And how to use the pecorino, both the pecorino delle balze volterranee or the pecorino toscano. You can use that as an ingredient for your cooking, especially like it in risotto, but also for stuffing for meat or pasta, of course. Or you can use that in a cheese board as an appetizer. I often prepare a big cheese board with some pecorino, some cold cuts, some bread, jam, and that becomes dinner when I have friends over. So after pecorino, let's move to another ingredient, farro della Garfagnana IGP. And where is Garfagnana? Garfagnana is in the north part of Tuscany, 
is a mountainous area with a unique landscape. Driving there is wonderful. You spend all your time looking up to admire old castles, fortified towers and outposts. It used to be a poor area and it was contended in between Tuscany and Emilia-Romagna. But nowadays, Garfagnana is a beautiful area for tourists as well, especially for its gastronomy because you have amazing local products. But back to farro. This is one of the oldest grains cultivated by men. It was known since the 7th century before Christ in Mesopotamia, Syria, Egypt and Palestine. It became a staple food for the Romans. So there's a saying that Roma was built on farro, which is spelt, more than ferro, iron. They would use the farro, flour, to make polenta and focaccia breads. This protein and vitamin-rich grain is a slow-release energy food. So this is why it was so prized among the Roman military. There was also another dish, it was called pulse or farratum, and it was a traditional dish similar to polenta, and it was supposed to bring good fortune, abundance and fertility, so it was prepared for newlywed couples. Together with salt, spelt made up the salary paid to Roman centuriones. With the introduction of other grains, farro was slowly abandoned, almost everywhere except in Garfagnana, because they've been cultivating farro since time immemorial, and so they still keep cultivating farro in an organic way in Garfagnana. So farro is an ancient ingredient, but it's also very modern. Uh, while I was researching for farro, I found a very interesting article from the New York Times. It's from the 1997, written by Suzanne Hamelin, and she says that now farro appears to be moving from rustic tables into fashionable restaurants, not only in Tuscany and northern Italy, but also in the, in the United States, particularly on the west and east coast. Farro dishes are now regularly on the menus at high-profile restaurants like Union Square Cafe in Manhattan, Zuni Cafe in San Francisco, Chez in Berkeley, California, and Olivetto in Oakland, California. So since there, 20 years ago, Farro has been very important in the world gastronomy. So let's talk about recipes with farro. Farro is a highly nutritional component. It satisfies hunger, gives energy, and it's easily digested. It has also a lower glycemic index. It's a hearty, it has a hearty, chewy texture and a nutty flavor, and it's a very healthy whole grain uh, because I said it's rich in fiber, iron, and proteins. Farro can be used in salads, soups, but also to make a kind of risotto that we call farrotto, because farro has a starch inside, which is very similar to the starch inside the arborio rice, the one we would usually use for risotto. So you can use the farro to prepare a risotto and it will have a delicious, nutty texture, chewy, fabulous. You can make soups with farro, the zuppa della garfagnana is very typical, it's made with uh, beans and farro. You can make cakes, either savory or sweet. Uh, there's a sweet one which is very lovely, it's called Torta Deliziosa. It's made with farro and ricotta and chocolate and all inside a short crust. crust. And then you can make uh, beer with farro. It's a very typical local beer from Garfagnana, which is very nice. And also, let's not forget about farro flour. With that flour, you can make everything. You can make cakes, you can make bread, typical bread from Garfagnana, for example. You can make pasta and biscotti. Now, don't forget that we are talking about a food tour. So let's get back to the butcher and try to picture this scene. There's a large counter with fresh local meat, 
a crowd of people queuing and waiting for their turn. Nonne chatting and sharing the news on their grandchildren and recipes. I like to queue at the butcher. I learn so much. When I go there with my group of students, the waiting is usually spent next to the charcuterie counter, naming and describing the artisanal products on display, trying to recognize their ingredients from their name or their look. Oh, look, that is a finocchiona. I say, oh, that's prosciutto toscano. So now we are going to talk about the king and the queen of the Tuscan charcuterie. Let's start with the queen, the finocchiona. Finocchiona has a very unique character. It is just like Tuscan people. It is straightforward and fun and honest. Uh, the name comes from the very unique ingredient you can find in the finocchiona, fennel finocchio. The finocchiona is a kind of salami made all over Tuscany with this unique ingredient, fennel seeds. It is produced in Tuscany since the medieval times. It was loved by everyone, by common people and by the nobles in Florence and in Siena. Niccolò Machiavelli used to love it. He wanted to have finocchiona for dinner every day. Fennel seeds had an important role during the medieval times because they were often used instead of black pepper. They were used not to preserve the meat, because that was the role of black pepper, but they were more used to hide the deterioration of meat. There were also, there's also another interesting word to learn from the Italian, which is infinocchiare. Infinocchiare means to cheat someone. Why infinocchiare from finocchio, fennel? Because the clever uh, countrymen, the clever farmers, they would prepare sausages with lots of fennel seeds inside, and then they would serve these sausages with the wine they wanted to sell. The fennel hides the flaws of wine. So every wine tasted after some fennel, it is amazing. So to these days, finocchiona is made with fresh, certified and controlled pork meat coming from Italian animals. Uh, and then there are other specific ingredients such as wild fennel seeds, garlic, salt, pepper, and optionally some red wine. These quantities should remain within a well-defined range, but this allows the manufacturers to use their own imagination because they can move inside these ranges to make their own unique finocchiona. The perfect pairing for finocchiona is our Tuscan bland bread. So it's a very typical street food that you can have. In Firenze, you can have finocchiona inside a schiacciata, which is a kind of focaccia with some pecorino cheese inside. And in Siena, instead of schiacciata, you would ask for ciaccino, which is almost the same thing with different names. But finocchiona is also an ingredient that you can use in a modern version. So like in cooking, not just in a cutting board with other charcuterie um, products, not just with bread or focaccia, but for example on pasta, to make a very interesting sauce for pasta, as a stuffing for fresh pasta, as a stuffing for meat, like pheasant for example, or on a pizza with figs probably, very nice with figs. So back to the butcher, back to the charcuterie board counter, to talk about another product, prosciutto toscano dop next to the finocchiona, the king of the Tuscan charcuterie. The history of prosciutto dates back to the Etruscans, just like many of the products we are talking today. There were even laws for pork processing in the time of Carlo Magno. However, during the 15th century under the rule of the Medici, 
This is when the production of the Tuscan ham became standardized. There were regulations at that date that are still in force today. In the 15th century, there was um, a group of people, the Ufficiali di Gracia, which means officers of Greece. It was an elected body of Florentine tradesmen, and they had to control the right pricing of the prosciutto and to monitor the observance of the production regulations. It was basically a consortium back in the days. The Tuscan prosciutto is quite unique, just like everything that takes time and care. I want to tell you how a prosciutto is made. It starts everything from selecting humanly raised Tuscan bread pigs and then cutting and seasoning the legs by hand to cure in special rooms with controlled temperature humidity for at least 12 months. These are traditions and the rules defined at the time of the Medici. So the legs are dry salted by using salt, pepper, bay leaf, rosemary, juniper berries, garlic and other typical aromas of our land. This is the typical tradition of dry salting, of using salt to preserve the meat and then hanging it um, to, to cure for months. It's very different from the smoking tradition. Here in Italy we are surrounded by the sea, so it has been always traditional to use salt to preserve rather than smoking. So this dry salting phase usually happens uh, during the months of December and January when the climate is dry and cold because the legs had to be placed to age in a cell at low temperature for at least 3-4 weeks. After this, when the weather changes, so now we're talking about June and July, when the air is drier, hams are checked in order to be smeared. They are smeared with a paste made of pure ground fat pork, enriched with rice flour, salt and pepper. So when the ham has been aging for at least 12 months, it is checked and if it's it's okay with all the checks, the ham is fire branded and it's ready to be sold. But before that, it's covered with black pepper. And that's the final step to have the prosciutto toscano DOP. So how to use in gastronomy this prosciutto? First of all, it's a slice of Tuscany. It's a little slice of Tuscany. So don't discard the fat because that's usually the most delicious part. And how to use it? Now that it's summer, prosciutto and melone is one of my favorite dinners because you have the contrast in between the sweet of the, of the melone and the saltiness of prosciutto. It's just like figs and prosciutto that works just as well, uh, especially on pizza. Then uh, prosciutto is a filling. My grandmother makes a very good stuffed pheasant with prosciutto, but also prosciutto in a charcuterie board or prosciutto e mozzarella as a nice dinner. And now I want to talk about another typical product of this area, Cinta Senese DOP. In Siena, right in one of the main halls of Palazzo Publico, the public building overlooking Piazza del Campo, there is the famous Buon Governo. It's a fresco painted by Ambrogio Lorenzetti in the 14th century. This fresco represents the allegory of the good and bad government in the city and in the countryside. In the side dedicated to the effects of good governance in the countryside, there is a farmer, his dress in the fashion of the time, pushing a cinta senese. You can recognize in that pig the cinta senese. It has a white belt, a belt in Italian is cinta, uh, all around the chest, and the white legs are the one in front. Despite this fresco that is back to the 14th century, there is evidence that the Cinta Senese was reared in these areas since the Etruscans and the Romans. So we can say that it is the progenitor of all the Tuscan pork breeds. The Cinta Senese is usually bred in the wild. It has floppy ears just to cover the eyes to protect them when they run wild in the shrubs 
or in the underbrush in search of acorns, roots and tubers. Yes, this is what they eat. They eat acorns, they eat roots, they eat mushrooms, they eat truffles. They certainly eat better than us. Until the 50s, almost all rural households would have their chintas and acid for their own consumption. Then slowly, since the introduction of the large white breed, the chinta gradually disappeared, risking the extinction. Thanks to the consortium of the Cinta Senese, we have still the Cinta nowadays. The Cinta Senese has a unique DNA. It has a more intense flavor due to its free-range breeding and the fat melts in your mouth, especially when you hold a slice of prosciutto from the fat part. And the fat melts also during cooking, creating a juicy, delicious piece of meat. What is really important is also to remember that Cinta Senese is rich in omega-3 and omega-6. So it's very healthy, and this is thanks to the free-range breeding. So how to use it? With the traditional recipes made with pork meat here in Tuscany, just like Arista, or a stew, or a pork ragu, or why not, they can use cinta senese to make cold cuts like prosciutto or sausages. After pork, beef. I want to talk about Vitellone Bianco dell'Appennino Centrale IGP. And this is what is commonly known as Chianina, the white giant here in Tuscany. Chianina is the center of many fairs and traditions. A Chianina calf is decoded the prize of winning team of Calcio Storico Fiorentino. But also in Siena, during the Palio, Chianina oxen pull the carroccio, which is the cart, carrying the banner of the Palio, during the parade in Piazza del Campo. Chianina has been present in Italy since 2,500 years ago. It was much appreciated by Etruscan and Romans, but it was probably brought here by the Phoenicians. They loved these white cows and they probably brought them from Asia, probably from Lebanon. They were not used as working animals, but as sacred animals for triumphal processions and for religious sacrifices. They would slaughter these animals to use the intestines to predict the future, and then they will grill the meat. Canina is probably the oldest breed of cattle raised in Italy. It can be recognized by the white coat, black pigmentation of muzzle and tongue, light and elegant head with short horns. It is the largest bovine in the world. In the centuries, Canina has been considered a working animal, but today it is one of the finest meat producers in the whole world. So apparently you are no one if you are not depicted in a medieval fresco or in a Renaissance drawing. And for Chianina, we can say exactly the same. Leonardo da Vinci, in his preparatory drawing for the adoration of the Magi in the 15th century, he draws a donkey and an ox. And if you look closely at this ox, we are pretty sure this is a Chianina cow. Talking about gastronomy for this kind of meat, we must say that it's best grilled or fried, spit roasted or even cooked although it's also ideal for using in stews. It's usually paired with a full-bodied red wine and is well known for being the meat used for the Fiorentina T-bone steak. A few words about the cooking and then we will talk about the Fiorentina. There are three steps you have to remember when cooking the meat. The first one is the temperature. So always cook your beef at room temperature because doing this you'll avoid the grayish liquid, grayish water that you have when you cook a meat which is very cold. You avoid the temperature shock and so at the end the meat is not grayish but nicely golden and brown. The second point is the searing. So you have to aim for the Maillard reaction. This is when you want to cook your meat very well to brown it on the outside to keep the juices inside and to develop the flavor thanks to this reaction. 
The third step is the resting. So grill your meat and then let it rest for a few minutes in between two warm dishes. Doing this, you allow the juices the time to set. And when you slice the meat, you don't have juices running all your plate, but a very nice and juicy piece of meat. And then, as I promised, I wanted to talk a little bit about Bistecca, our T-bone steak, the Fiorentina. So the name Bistecca sounds very similar to English beef steak. So why, if this is, you know, known as a Florentine dish? Again, just like with everything today, there are two possible explanations. One is probably the reality, the other one is a legend. I'll start with the legend. So we were in the 1565, in the occasion of the Feast of San Lorenzo on the 10th of August, and local people in Florence, they used to make barbecue along the river. So they were barbecuing, they were grilling some beef, and there were many Englishmen there, uh, thanks to the trade in between Tuscany and England. They smelled the meat, and they start asking for beef steak, beef steak. So from that moment on, we start calling a beef steak a bistec. So what happened in real life? So probably uh, during the 19th century, many English people, they would live in and around Florence, they would visit, and they made the butchers cut the beef steak, a kind of cut that was not common until that time, the T-bone steak. So from that moment on, they start calling that a bistecca. And this is probably Pellegrino Artusi, who's the first one to define the recipe for bistecca alla fiorentina. Now I want to introduce you to the chestnut civilization of Tuscany. If you look at Tuscany, at the actual region, in the north of Tuscany, you have Lunigiana and Garfagnana. Then on the side, the mountains around Pistoia, then Mugello, and then in the south, you have Amiata. These are, these are all the mountain areas of Tuscany, and this is where you can find chestnut trees. During lean times, where supplies were hard to come by, the versatile and high caloric chestnut nourished local populations before the introduction of potatoes or corn. The flour made from chestnuts is used in polenta, bread, cakes, cookies, fresh pasta and necci. The chestnut flour is also called sweet flour and it is one of the key ingredients of the Tuscan mountain Cucina Povera, from Garfagnana to Pistoia, from Mugello to Amiata. When people had to struggle to source food for the family, Chester supported the local population, with their calorie supply and their versatility. Talking about chestnuts, we have to introduce a very important female figure, which is fundamental in the history of Italy, and she is Matilde di Canossa. Matilde di Canossa was a red-haired countess. She is said to be the Pope's lover. She married twice. She was a warrior who led her own army into battle. She also found some time to give rules on how to set the chestnut groves stating the distance in between the trees, that is called Sesto Matildico, which is about 10 meters. With Matilde di Canossa, the production of marrone increased too. So you have to know marrone is different from castagna. Castagna is chestnut. It is the wild fruit of a chestnut tree. Marrone is instead a domestic fruit. It is the result of a grafting. Chestnuts and marroni and their flower, they are ancient, but in the same time, modern ingredients. The chestnut flour is gluten-free, so it can be used to make pancakes that are called necci, or cakes, just like castagnaccio, that are naturally gluten-free and vegan. A castagnaccio is a chestnut cake. It's made just with chestnut flour and water, and then you add some olive oil, pine nuts, raisins, rosemary, and then you bake it. And you get a very unique cake with, with a chewy texture. Uh, it's very similar to a bread pudding, it's an acquired taste, but for me it's the best cake for the 
winter period. Necci are instead chestnut pancakes. They're made just with chestnut flour and water. They were made in between two cast iron discs. Nowadays they can be made in non-stick pan. And they are nice again because they are versatile. They are gluten-free, they are vegan. Um, you can have them as an afternoon break for merenda with some ricotta with a little bit of sugar, but they're very nice also eaten with savory things like eggs, pancetta, sausages on prosciutto. Chestnuts can be used for stuffing, in soups, for risotto, but chestnut flour can be used also in a risotto to cream the risotto, to make it smoother, or to thicken the sauce of an arrosto, of a roast meat. Talking about chestnuts in Tuscany, we have Castagna del Monte Amiata EGP. They are produced in the Monte Amiata area, just like we talked at the beginning about the olive oil from Seggiano. And there are three different kinds of castagna, cecio, marrone and bastarda rossa. They can be even used to make beer. For the marrone del Mugello, as we said, it's a domestic fruit of the chestnut tree. The production area is that of Mugello, so the hills and mountains over Florence. For centuries, the chestnut tree was known as the bread tree, and the chestnuts were known as the bread of poor people. These chestnuts are very nice when they are roasted, and we call them either bruciate, burnt, or caldarroste, or they're very nice when they are boiled, especially with fennel seeds. In this case, they are known as ballotte. Both these kinds of cooking the chestnuts, so bruciate and ballotte, can be peeled and then soaked in red wine. In this case, they are called ubriache, which means drunk. The chestnuts from Mugello, the marroni, can be used to produce delicious marron glacé as well as for producing flour or jam. Now we are getting toward the end of this speech and this is when I want to introduce you three sweet treats from Tuscany. Let's start with Cantuccini Toscani EGP. The origins of the Cantuccini date back at least to the 16th century, but the name is older. It might come from the word cantellus, which is Latin for a piece of slice of bread, a salt cracker which Roman soldiers ate on their military campaigns. It was anisid flavored, it was toasted twice in the oven for conservative purposes. So if at the beginning this was savory, after the sugar boom of Tuscany in the 14th century, it became a sweet biscotto, a sweet biscuits. The sweet cantuccini, they were loved by the House of Medici. The first appearance of their name, of the name Cantuccini, is from the 1691, in the third edition of the Accademia della Crusca Dictionary, and they are described as a biscuit slice of fine flour with sugar and egg whites. This biscotto was definitely loved by Tuscan people. Francesco Redi is a writer in the 17th century. In his many epistolary exchanges from Pisa, he used to accompany his missives with cantuccini. At the time, they were considered not just a delicacy, but biscuits with healing and restorative properties. And I do agree. Almonds became one of the most important ingredients of cantuccini at the beginning of the 20th century, when the cantuccini started to be produced in Tuscany on a large scale. Today the ingredients are wheat flour, whole natural almonds, which are unpeeled, pasteurized chicken eggs and egg yolk, butter, sugar, wildflower honey and rising agents. How to enjoy the cantuccini? Well, that's easy. Make yourself an espresso and you can dip your cantuccini in the espresso or dunk the cantuccini in a vinsanto. But they are so nice also on their own or crumbled over a gelato or a cheesecake, for example. Cantuccini can be produced all over Tuscany. But now let's talk about Panforte and Ricciarelli, because to have them EGP, they have to be produced in Siena. In the 13th century, Siena was a very rich town. Thanks to the Crusades, it was at the center of the trade of spices. In the Divina Commedia, Dante talks about Niccolò Salimbeni. 
a merchant from Siena of that time. Niccolò Salimbeni and his Brigata Spendereccia, a spendthrift brigade, they love to spend money on good things, good life, good food. So it means that Siena was a city who loved to feast. Many spezierie, apothecaries' shop, became part of the pharmacies of the time, especially in convents and abbeys. Even after the loss of independence and the end of the Republic in the 1555, the Medici let Siena remain quite independent and the city flourished from the sugar boom which transformed Tuscany in the first confectionery region of Europe. This left an indelible sign in Siena and still nowadays Siena is famous and popular for the Ricciarelli, Panforte, but also for Cavallucci, Copate and Cantucci. Panforte is one of the most ancient and typical cakes of Italy. Its origins date back to the Middle Ages, and it's part of the history of Siena. Probably his forefather was pane melatas. It was a kind of bread made with salt, water, figs, grapes and honey. It was rich and tasty when fresh, but then it became acid and rather sour as time passed by. It would become almost spicy, hence the name Panis Fortis or Panforte. The first official document in which it is mentioned is a parchment of the State Archives of Siena of February 1205, where the products included amongst the presents that servants and sharecroppers were obliged to take to the nuns of the Abbey of Montecelso, near Siena. Panforte di Siena is also mentioned around 1280 in the statue of the Baker's Guild, but it is in the 15th century that it reached its fame. It was in every menu of sumptuous pancakes all over Italy and abroad. It was mentioned in Genoa, in Venice. Well, but until the 1599, this cake was produced just by the speciali, the chemists, who were only 12 in the whole city. A very important date for Panforte is the 1879. It is the birth of the white panforte, or panforte margherita. They decided to make a special panforte in honor of Margherita di Savoia, the queen that was visiting Siena for the Palio of August. They decided to use less spices and to remove the spices from top of the panforte and to dust it with ice and sugar. That's the birth of panforte margherita, or white panforte. So nowadays there are two kinds of panforte IGP. The first one is the white version. It is made with candied citron and candied orange peel. And then of course you have flour, you have whole unpeeled sweet almonds, wildflower honey, nutmeg, cinnamon, icing sugar to sprinkle over the cake and a starch wafer used as a base. There are also optional ingredients, just like hazelnuts, diced candied menon, a mixture of maize, pepper, pimento, coriander, cloves and vanilla. The darker version is made with flour, whole and unpeeled sweet almonds, but then you find diced candied melon and candied orange peel, sugar, nutmeg, cinnamon and sweet pepper. Then there's a mixture of the above spices for sprinkling over the cake and the rice paper used as a base. The optional ingredients are diced citron, a mixture of nutmeg, coriander, star anise, cloves, ginger, allspice, chili, vanilla, caramel, walnuts, honey and cocoa for sprinkling. It's impossible for me to decide which one I like better. I'd rather have both of them. And now, Ricciarelli di Siena, IGP. The origin of the name is uncertain. A legend has it that is linked to a nobleman, Ricciardetto della Gerardesca, who brought the recipe with him on his return from the Crusades. According to others, the word Ricciarelli is due to their lightly crinkled form. The origins of Ricciarelli di Siena, PGI, 
date back to the Middle Ages, when the Sinise imported marzipan, most likely from the East. These biscuits were used as a donation to pay homage to someone, and Niccolò Machiavelli himself told of how the Sinise offered small marzipans to a papal legate visiting the city. The making of Ricciardi di Siena took place in convents or apothecaries. They were the only places in which the essential spices and the aromas and the sugar for preserving food could be found. In the 15th century, the Sinise marzipans were so famous that they could not be based at the wedding banquets all over Europe. They were given their name Ricciarelli just in the 19th century. Nowadays, the Ricciarelli are made of a mixture of almonds, sugar and honey, finally refined and worked together with egg whites to form a very soft and aromatic dough, which makes the Ricciarelli distinctly different from the normal marzipans. So here we are. We are at the end of our food tour of our virtual cooking class using all the best products of Tuscany. This is the end of today's episode of our podcast, Cooking with an Italian Accent. I'd love to hear from you. How do you choose your products? Are you familiar with PDO and PGI products? How do you recognize the quality of the food you buy when you do not know the producer? If this is a subject that is interesting for you, an informed way to shop for local and sustainable products, let us know, as we might work on a series of episodes specifically dedicated to the different products, with interviews and recipes. Share with me via email or with a post or a story on Instagram using the hashtag cooking with an Italian accent and tagging Jules Kitchen. If you have questions about Italian Tuscan cooking, just email me at jules at juleskitchen.com or join our Facebook group Cooking with Jules Kitchen. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you are listening to a podcast, and share it with your friends too. You will find all the links to the recipes and the consortia we mentioned today in this episode description. Don't forget to visit juleskitchen.com for more information and to discover new stories and recipes from Tuscany. Ciao, alla prossima!